All right, let's get started. Giotto de Bionde. Anybody know who that is? What's that? Okay. Uh, he was a Florentine painter, architect, and sculptor. Um, he had immense talent. He was kind of the, the one artist who broke out of medieval and Byzantine art, and he's kind of considered the father of uh, the Italian Renaissance. He was kind of the very first Italian Renaissance painter. Um, when I get into what he's most famous for, you'll probably remember the story a little bit. Um, at the start of the 14th century, word of Giotto's mastery reached Pope Benedict, Benedict XI um, in Lombardy. The Pope sent a courtier to Florence to see who this Giotto was, who was getting so famous and to possibly commission him to do some art in St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. The courtier traveled first to Siena, where there were some other painting masters, uh, to collect some works of theirs uh, to take back to the Pope and his advisors. And when he went to Giotto's studio in Florence, he asked him if he could have some paintings to take back. And Giotto um, set up a canvas, and he took a brush, dipped it in red paint, and with one hand drew a perfect circle. And he said, take this back. The courtier felt like he was being mocked and he asked for a real drawing, a real painting. And Giotto said, this is enough. In fact, it's more than enough. And although he expected he was being taken for a ride, the courtier took Giotto's drawing back along with the works of all the other masters he had, co- he had collected. And uh, the courtier explained how Giotto had drawn the circle unaided, and so the Pope and his advisors got out a compass and found it to be a completely perfect circle, free-handed. Giotto's proof of his mastery was in a single free-handed circle. It was a concise way to demonstrate his enormous technical skill. Watching him draw the circle, it probably looked simple, uh, but undoubtedly it took years, if not decades, to practice. Uh, needless to say, Giotto got the job, the first commission for the art going into the Basilica. Masters, those who have mastered a craft, find a way to make it look incredibly easy. Uh, And they make us overlook the true complexity of a thing. Uh, Musicians do this, artists do this. My kids do this with drawing. I cannot draw to save my life, which makes no sense to me. It seems like I should be good at it. I watch them do it, and I'm like, oh, that's how you do that. That's how you get perspective. And then I try to do it, and it looks like kindergarten work. I just cannot get it to come out my hand. I can appreciate art. I can analyze and break down art. I just can't do art, and it drives me crazy. No matter how simple somebody else makes it look, I can't make it work. When I was in high school, during March Madness, me and my buddies always, every March, played these huge epic basketball games in my friend Danny Sanifer's driveway. He had this long driveway with a cord on both ends. We would lower the goals so that we could dunk like all the NBA or NCAA stars. And, uh, and it was always super frustrating because you get so pumped up watching them play and you expect you're going to go out back and make it look just as cool. And, uh, and obviously we never could. And so something about watching somebody exhibit true mastery both inspires us and sometimes makes us overlook Uh, just how much work goes into it. Tonight's passage is kind of like a perfect circle. Um, Tonight we're dealing with David's repentance psalm. And repentance, like like the perfect circle, sounds easy. It sounds fairly simple. In fact, it's become one of those Christianese buzzwords that we throw around just expecting people are going to understand what we mean. 
And we come by this honestly because the New Testament oftentimes talks about repentance this way. One of the most famous verses in the New Testament says, But if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Sounds simple. Sounds like draw a circle. But when we study Psalms 51, a lot like the Pope and his advisor studying Giotto's circle, only as we really spend time with it do we realize that this guy not only did it, but he got it right. David got repentance right. And we're going to break that down just a little bit tonight. Psalms 51 is David's psalm that he wrote um, where he gets it just right. Of all of David's psalms, this psalm reflects more than any other an almost New Testament understanding of grace and forgiveness. Uh, it's, it's almost out of its time and place, uh, the things that David got right in this psalm. It's uncanny how much in the light of his failure he was able to see through the legal logistics of the Torah to the heart of not only God's character, but the nature of humanity and the true essence of what's going on when we confess and repent. Tonight's passage was written on the heels of what we talked about last week. Last week we talked about David's sin with Bathsheba, kind of his fall and just how far that spiraled out of control. David breaks his normal rhythm of taking his soldiers into war during the kind of warring season. And he starts down this road to incremental sin where he sees a woman and then he investigates to find out who she is. Is she single? Is she available? Finds out she's not. Decides to invite her over to dinner anyway. Invites her over to dinner and finally winds up sleeping with her and falling. And this gets compounded by a cover-up. He starts to lie and starts to break some of his own personal convictions. He sits down with a man who should have been a kindred spirit, someone who should have been a, a close friend, a man very similar to David, and, and he's false with that guy. He's false with who he really is, and he portrays a, a false self to him. And, and when that guy turns out to be true, in the end, David sends him on his way with his own death sentence, finds him in a place he never could have dreamed in a million years he would wind up when the whole thing started. Well, David does marry Bathsheba, and he kind of puts this whole story behind him. They do have a, a child, but the baby dies. But as far as David knows, this has been this is put in the past until Nathan the prophet shows up. And remember, Nathan the prophet was the one who told David he was going to have an eternal heir. David and Nathan get along fine. A lot of the stories in the Bible, the prophets don't exactly get along with those in in leadership with the rulers. But Nathan does. Nathan gets along with David. They've talked a few times. Nathan's the one David went to and said, hey, I want to build a house for God. I, you know, I want to bring the ark home. Nathan, Nathan's kind of been David's spiritual confidant. And so Nathan this time comes to David. And Nathan shows up with a report from the kingdom. He said, there's this uh, poor man in your kingdom who has one sheep. And he's raised this sheep from when it was a baby. He loves it. It's, it's, a, it's a pet. It's not food. Um, this is one of those animals that you put in the family picture. I've never understood, but some people do it. You know, this is, this is that kind of sheep. This is a, a sheep that, that the man truly loves. That man has a next door neighbor who's rich. And this was not uncommon in a land where, uh, uh, where the land is familial, uh, gets passed down through generation. Uh, it's pretty common for rich to be next door to poor and they didn't have neighborhoods where we do where property value was important. So it wasn't uncommon to have a rich guy living next to a poor guy. 
And this rich guy had fields full of livestock, cattle and sheep, it said, everything you could possibly. And they were not pets. They were food. And this guy has someone coming over for a dinner party, Nathan says. And instead of going out onto his own land and slaughtering a lamb or a, a bull for the party, he goes over to his neighbor's house and he takes his pet that he loves so much and slaughters it to serve to his guests for his dinner party. Well, David loses it. He swears the rich man will die this ver- that very day. He's completely outraged. This is Israel after all. The land where justice is supposed to prevail. This is the land where personal property is protected and wrongdoers get punished. He is outraged. Nathan lets David's righteous indignation kind of reach a fever pitch where David is ready to go out and kill someone. And he drops the bomb. Nathan tells David, you are the man. David is the rich man. Nathan, by the way, is absolutely brilliant because he, uh, he knows David's personality. He knows if he comes in and says, how could you? You know, he would have been in huge trouble. So what he does is he uses a metaphor to capture the king of metaphors. He uses art to capture the artist. David is this poet and this beautiful writer who speaks in metaphorical language and word pictures. And Nathan comes in with a big word picture and uses David's kind of gift against him. He captures him in the emotions of a story. And David bites. After dropping the bomb on David, he breaks down the metaphor. Uriah had one wife whom he loved with all of his heart. The king had many wives, as many as he wanted. But rather than enjoying one of his own wives, David took Uriah's one wife and then killed Uriah. Nathan's ploy worked. David is crushed. And in the guilt of of this revelation, David writes tonight's psalm. This is Psalms 51. For the choir director, a psalm of David, regarding the time Nathan the prophet came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. That's in the original text, so it, it lays it out perfectly for us. We know exactly what it's talking about. No conjecture at all. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sins. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, but you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep, me look, don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take away, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God, who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. Do not despise you do not despise a sacrifice or I would offer one. You sorry, you do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Look with favor on Zion and help her. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. 
Then you will be pleased with sacrifices offered in the right spirit, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will again be sacrificed on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. So here's what I thought would be fun tonight. Because this is one of those passages we could teach a whole series on. This is, there's so much in this passage about the character of God and the nature of humanity that um, you could expound this one psalm for all summer. But instead of kind of going through and doing a step-by-step like how-to manual for confession, I thought we would use David's revelations here in this psalm to kind of pull out some of the myths about biblical forgiveness. Some of the things that that we hear all the time and even say all the time that actually aren't true biblically. So quick disclaimer, these myths are based on the way I see most Christians kind of using confession and repentance. So I, this is very generalized. That doesn't apply to everybody. If, if I say something that doesn't apply to you, just ignore me and play Pokemon Go and just pretend like I'm not talking to you. That's fine. But these are the myths that I kind of see. Myth number one, uh, forgiveness is a theological imperative. I'm going to break that down. I, it came out kind of nerdy, so give me a second. Um, <laughs> right off the bat, we're dealing with one that's pretty tricky uh, concerning repentance. This myth goes something like this. God's word says that if I confess my sins to him, he's faithful and just forgive me my sins and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. Therefore, I basically have God in a rear naked choke. He has no option other than to forgive me because he said he would. Like we... We kind of use scripture to almost say, you have no option but to forgive me because you said you would. It's basically feeling like as believers, we have a get out of jail free card that we can use any time we sin because we found a loophole in the contract. That if, if that all we have to do is say a quick confession and all is good. Like it's this, uh, and, and we carry that loophole around with us like we're saying, aha, God, you have to forgive me. Um, whether you like it or not, because your word says. And here's the way I see it. I cannot imagine God would ever defy his word. But can he do that? Absolutely. He's God. If he basically wanted to go, you know what, I changed my mind. Erase this and start over. What are we going to do? Like, how do we go? No, wait a minute, that's not fair. No, I don't even think we get through the sentence. Like, he's God. Like, technically, he can do whatever he wants. Psalms 51 reveals... Um, what I, something that I think is very, very important in the act of forgiveness. Let's read what David says first. For the choir director, a psalm of David regarding when Nathan the prophet came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Divine forgiveness is always rooted in the character of God. It's always rooted in God's character. It's not rooted in some contractual writing. We don't go to God and say, you have to forgive me because your word says. We go to God and say, God, because of who you are, I'm asking you to forgive me. Because you're good. Because, you're, because of your compassion. We, we appeal to God's character when we go to forgiveness. Not, you know, some loophole we get to claim. We go to God because of who he is. True repentance never says, look at all the good I've done. Or, or God... I have this theological trump card I can throw where you have to forgive me because I confessed. True repentance says not because of me, not because of some verse that I can quote, but because of who you are, God. Because of your goodness, please forgive me. Because of your character, please forgive me. So forgiveness always begins with the character of God. Myth number two, holiness is a graduated scale. 
This is a myth that is basically rooted in the human psyche, that we always want to rank everything. It basically says, I may not be getting an A, but I'm, at least I'm not getting a D or an F. I may not be holy, but I'm a lot better than that guy. Like, we want to rank things and kind of find someone to compare ourselves to to say, at least I've got my stuff more together than that guy does. We know we aren't perfect, but we at least want to find someone to compare ourselves to that makes us feel good. But David notices something big in this psalm. He says, For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I've done what's evil in your sight. You'll be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. David's sin in this story opens his eyes to his own nature. He not only recognizes the character of God, that God is good, that God is, is kind and loving, but he learns something about his own nature. What he finds is that his own nature is sinful. He's not guilt, just guilty of this particular sin. He's a sinner. I think for the first time, David recognizes that he's a sinner. And he's always been a sinner. David realizes holiness is not a graded A, B, C, D, or F. Holiness is pass-fail. And he has failed. David realizes in his confession that he missed the mark, the entire mark. And not only that, but he seems to understand that sin is in his very nature and has been from the beginning. This is the power of Nathan's style of confrontation. David knew he had sinned the second he committed the sin. Like, he knew that, that what he had done was wrong. This is where it gets really nuanced and kind of interesting. David knew it was wrong. That's why he tried to cover it up. Like, there was no, oh, I didn't realize I'd messed up. David knew he had sinned. So his reaction to knowing he had sinned was very different than his reaction after Nathan talked to him. There was a, there was a difference in understanding the sin from the moment he did it. and was like, oh, man, now I'm in trouble. I need to get Uriah home so that nobody catches me. He knew what he had done was wrong, but that's very different than conviction. Conviction is, is, is an issue of the heart. And in the second Nathan said, you're the man, something deeply changed in David. It went from just recognizing what I did was wrong to recognizing what I did was truly wrong. He, he truly, for the first time, felt the weight of his sin. Nathan opened David's eyes to the true nature of what he had done. Nathan takes David from I have sinned to I am a sinner. As soon as David saw himself as a selfish, arrogant, rich man who would steal his neighbor's pet and eat it, he understood what he had done really and who he was and that they were altered forever. This is one of the verses that's remarkably New Testament. This is, this is, you don't find this deep of an understanding of our sinful nature anywhere else in the Old Testament. That all of this stuff comes wired in. So David doesn't just confess this particular sin. He confesses in this psalm his very sin nature. From the moment I was conceived, I was sinful. I'm a sinner and I always have been. So repentance begins with the character of God. And it takes into account the nature of man. And number three, the third myth, is that repentance equals penance. Again, this one's buried deep in human nature. We want to do something. We feel like we have to do something. It's like we have to do something to make it right. We want to believe that God's forgiveness is rooted in something that I do. Something that I can, that I can 
pay for. You know, that there's something I can do to make it better. If we clean it up, then God will forgive me. If I do A, B, C, I'll be back on God's good side. But David sees through this. He says, purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. David realizes that forgiveness is a work of God. There's nothing he can do to make himself clean. There's nothing he can do to make himself white. David didn't say, give me another chance and I'll stay clean. Give me another chance and I'll stay white. He recognizes that only God can clean me. If you'll clean me, then I'll be clean. If you'll make me white, then I'll be whiter than snow. There's nothing I can do to accomplish that. Part of learning about his own nature and realizing that left to his own devices, he'll always do what's sinful. David recognized if he's going to be clean or whiter than snow, God's going to have to do that work. That's a work he can't do himself. Which is why he's here. He's, he's begging God to do this work because he knows it's a work only God can do. And that, again, another remarkably kind of New Testament realization. In fact, David somehow sees right through the Old Testament legalism into the core of grace. He says this later, You do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want burnt offerings. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You, you will not reject a broken and repentant heart. This is a fascinating verse because in the kind of religious system David was in, God absolutely wanted sacrifice. He absolutely wanted animals Sacrifice, And so for David to go, you don't want all those sacrifices, was very hard to imagine in that C.S. Lewis used to say, you know, we have this, sometimes with our worship, we have this feeling like somehow God desires or needs or wants our worship. And C.S. Lewis says it's a little bit snarky, but he's like, I can imagine God going, if I want good music, I'm not coming to you for it. <laughs> like, like, God doesn't need our worship. He knows that we need to worship. Like and he, he, he offers us the opportunity to come to him and worship because he knows it's good for our soul. He's not sitting there, oh, what am I going to do if nobody worships me? That's not how God functions. And, and, and David seems to get this. Like, I understand you don't need the sacrifices. I understand you don't need the bulls and the rams. That, that, none of this is for you. This is for us. And what you, what you really want is for us to come to you broken, uh, with, uh, for us to come to you with our hearts opened to you. David recognizes even in the religious system that was built on the things that the sinner must do to be cleansed, that the only thing that truly cleansed him was a work of God. Only if God truly did a work in him could he be cleansed, that nothing in this system did that. Incidentally, one of my favorite part of the Psalms is the final verse when he says, then you will be pleased with sacrifices offered in the right spirit, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will again be sacrificed on your, altar, on your altar. So right after saying you don't desire bulls, you don't desire sacrifices, David says, after I repent, then you will be pleased with my offerings and sacrifices. In the New Testament, we have this debate between faith and works. Are we made righteous by our faith in Christ or by the good deeds we do? And the problem with that is we tend to make it binary, either or, mutually exclusive. Like it has to be faith or works. And the truth is it's faith then works. They, they're, they're actually both present. And if you get them out of order, they don't work. It can't go works than faith. It goes faith then works. Like we, we come to Jesus broken and open and, and I have nothing to offer and nothing to give. And he, and he heals us. And then suddenly the work, and, and actually if we don't come to him broken, 
the work we do, Paul says, counts against us because it's us trying to arm wrestle God, trying to say, ah, now you have to love me because I've done these good deeds. It, and, and God sees right through that. And, and all this good work we're doing actually counts against us. When we come in faith broken, knowing we can offer nothing, knowing we have nothing to give, knowing all we can do is fall on his grace and his mercy. And then out of that acceptance, we start to do good. We start to pursue Jesus and be more like him and act more like him. Suddenly we find that working to draw us closer to him. So David doesn't say, I'm never going to offer sacrifices again. I'm done being a Jew. He just says, I know I, there, are, there are not enough sacrifices in the world to cleanse me. There's nothing I can do to cleanse me. That's something only God can do. God has to do this work in me. And then I will offer sacrifices. Then I will do good. So salvation, repentance, begins with the character of God, moves on to the character of us, and it has to be a work of God. The myth number four, and this is where it starts to get fun. Sin ruins our testimony. This is a powerful myth. Partially because it's not 100% false. Some people are looking at me funny like, I can't wait to see where he takes this. If, if we were going to state this true, it would be continual unrepentant sin ruins our testimony. That's a true statement. Sin does not ruin our testimony, or it shouldn't, because our testimony is not our own behavior. Our testimony is never how perfect we are. If your testimony was, look how good I am, yes, sin would ruin your testimony. But when your testimony is, look how good God is, sin cannot ruin that testimony. When we sin and we get up and repent and we say, look, I'm, I'm completely frail, I'm completely faulty, and God just loves me, then sin does nothing but reveal the heart of God. I'm not saying go out and sin and to improve your testimony. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying we have this, we have this feeling that somehow... You know, if we, if we mess up, you know, if we blow it, that, you know, it's going to ruin God's reputation. That's only true if, if God's reputation is hinging on your perfectness. It's not. God's reputation is his goodness. And when we sin and we're honest with it the way David was, and we're like, look, I messed up. I blew it. I completely, you know, fell. And God still loves me. That's a testimony of God's goodness. We don't brag about how good we are. We brag about how good Jesus is. We screw up all the time. We blow it regularly. And when we own that, and when we grasp that he still loves us, it changes the way we act and talk about Jesus. David put it this way. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God, who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. We've been talking through this entire study about how David grows and his character changes as, as he progresses through his life and how his art kind of reveals that. Anybody remember his manifesto? The week we talked about David's like, I'm not going to look on anything wrong. I'm going to be completely righteous. I'm going to do right. The very last verse of that is Psalms 101. We talked about it a few weeks ago. If you didn't hear that message, go back and listen to it. But the very last verse of that psalm, so remember that, that was right when he became king. So he had just become king. He just kind of left that exile where he's running from Saul. He just becomes king. He's ambitious. He's excited. 
Um, he wants to do it right. He's optimistic. And he gives this big psalm about, you know, how high he's aiming, how much he wants to do right. And the very last verse of that psalm, Psalm 101 goes, My daily task will be to ferret out the wicked and free the city from the Lord, uh, the city of the Lord from their group or from their grip. Notice the change in David's tone from before he sins and after he sins when it comes to other sinners. Before he falls, he's like, I'm going to root them out. I'm going to find them and I'm going to stop them. Like he has this combative, you know, they're the bad guys understanding. And then all of a sudden David falls. And he says, God, if you forgive me, I will show other people how to find you. I will lead others to you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. No longer is it I will ferret them out and I'll stop them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure I remove every wicked person from the city of God. Now it's I have a heart to show other people how to get to you too. I have a heart to show other people who you are. So sin doesn't ruin David's testimony. If anything, it gives him a testimony. It changes him from a guy who hunts for and ferrets out sinners to a guy who can't teach other sinners, can't wait to teach other sinners how to find God, how to return to God. Jesus says it this way, she who is forgiven much loves much. That only when we recognize how broken we are, only when we recognize how fallen we are, and we go to God and find that he, he receives us and loves us and, and forgives us, do we turn around to other people who are broken and messed up and go, I'm no better than you. I'm no different than you. I can't look down on you at all. When you're standing where David was in his manifesto, when you're like, I'm awesome, I'm going to keep being awesome, I'm never going to stop being awesome, it's really easy to look at other people and go, you are not awesome. Like, you are nowhere near as awesome as I am. Only when you find yourself on bottom broken and recognizing I can do nothing in my own power, I can do nothing without God. Do you look at someone else and go, yeah, me too, brother. How about we chase Jesus together? Because I have no better grasp, no higher claim than you do. And the final myth that we want to talk about, and this is one that we discuss quite a lot here at OTCC, repentance is turning from sin. It's another fun one. Because we say this all the time, right? This is kind of how we understand repentance. This is a really tricky myth because it sounds so right. But it's more easily explained this way. If you are in sin and you turn away from it to another sin, you have not repented. Turning from your sin is not repentance. Repentance isn't what you turn from, it's what you turn to. Many, many Christians turn from an act of sin to religiosity and judgmentalism, legalism. Paul confronts this in the book of Romans where he spends the whole first chapter of the book talking about how far down sin can spiral. Like, and he, he, he gets pretty descriptive and he's like, they started by not giving God glory and they ended in all manner of depravity. Like he just, he talks about this kind of spiral of sinful man. The downward spiral of sinful man was the, what I used to title that chapter when I taught it in Bible college. The downward spiral of sinful man. He, Paul, talk, Paul talks about just how far down we can go when we start with something as simple as not giving God glory for who he is. 
And then he follows up with chapter 2. And the very first verse of chapter 2, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, goes like this. You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad, you who have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself for you who judge others do these very same things. And how many of us do that? We look at other people and we're like, and, and immediately those, those guys, those blah, blah, blah. And Paul drops the bomb on us. He's like, and, and what the worst part is, we spend chapter one going, yeah, yeah, those guys, they're, they're messed up and blah, 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 blah. And we're cheering right along with him. Paul sounds like he's telling us how nasty they are. And we're like, you're right, they are nasty. Well, and he's like, and you who are agreeing with me are just as bad. You can't turn from one sin to another and call it repentance. Religious people stand there nodding and shouting with Paul and find themselves condemned. Look at David's greatest concern in his psalm. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach, other, or teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. David's greatest fear is that his sin means separation from God. And you've got to remember, his predecessor experienced pretty much just that. David watched. He played guitar for a guy who, who the Spirit of God would leave him and, a, and a, an oppressive spirit would come. And, and David saw what happened to Saul. And now David falls. You've got to know there's part of him that's like, oh, don't do me like you did Saul. Please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Please don't. Remove your presence from me. Repentance is not turning from something. It's turning to something. Repentance is turning toward God. And granted, when we turn toward God, yeah, we're turning away from our sin, but this is what we call around here the cruciocentric model of repentance. Oftentimes we talk about repentance and salvation like it's a finish line that we... And we cross, and as soon as we cross it, we can start talking about in and out, those who are in our group and those who are those other guys who are out of our group and the and the it's us and them. Like and we like the the exclusive language of that. In crowd and the out crowd. Being cruciocentric means that the cross stands in the center. And we're scattered all around it, and our goal is to always be turning toward it. That our life is always about repenting toward the cross, toward Christ. Some of us look like we're close to the cross. And we grew up in a Christian home and we know how to act. We know how to talk. We know what to do. We know how to live. And we may be pointing the wrong direction. We might look a whole lot more Christian than this guy out here who looks a mess. And he's speaking languages like near and far. He might be far, but he's pointing in the right direction and he's turning his life toward the cross. And if you looked at that picture 10 years later, this guy that looked like he was close might be out here now. This guy that looked like he was far might be in here now. It's, we talk in terms of near and far and trajectory. And all of us are, are pursuing Christ together. We're saying, turn to the cross with me. I'm not over here on this side of the line. You're over there on that side of the line. We're both. I'm inviting you to join me in turning toward the cross. That cruciocentric understanding of sin. That repentance is a turning toward God. It's a turning toward 
Jesus. When we start talking in terms of repenting from sin, we can bounce all over the place trying to manage behavior. And that might not get us any closer to Jesus. The beauty of this is that it works if you are David and you've just committed adultery and murdered somebody. And it works if you're just living your life and you've kind of gotten distracted and, and you're not really following Jesus and maybe nobody even notices the difference in your heart that you've just kind of drifted and wandered. And both those people do the same thing. They both turn toward Jesus. They repent. And the same repentance works for both. In philosophy, we call this uh, teleological repentance. What a big word to take home with you. Repentance is teleological. That means when we study a phenomenon in terms of its purpose, not its cause. So, I could get off track and go deep into the philosophy, but we won't. Repentance is about the purpose of the repentance, not the cause of the repentance. The sin is the cause. And repentance is not causal. Because we are, sin is in our core. You think you're turning away from it, and usually what you're doing is trading it. You're just swapping it. Repentance is about the purpose. It's about saying, I want to be like Jesus. I want to pursue Jesus. And I I might be carrying a baggage of sin with me as I do it, but ideally as I get closer to Jesus, I'm going to start laying those down. They're going to start falling. He's going to start helping me to do better. He's going to start, I mean, what does David say? Make me willing to obey you. He recognizes where the power comes from. He recognizes, I'm just chasing after you. I'm coming toward you, and I'm asking you, help me with this other stuff. Right now, I'm just carrying it with me. There's nothing in me that goes, yeah, as soon as I fix all these issues I have, then I'll then I'll pursue Jesus. No, I'm just going to pursue Jesus. There's nothing, my sin has nothing to do with this. It's purposeful. It's teleological. I want to be like Jesus. I want to get closer to Jesus and trust that he's going to take care of all this garbage and junk. I know that sounds semantic when we start talking about purpose versus cause, but there's a huge difference. There's a huge difference in our purpose being like Jesus, rather than my purpose for repentance, and so I'll stop doing this thing. Do you understand the difference? Like, you feel how huge that is? My purpose, let's say it's whatever, smoking. I'm just grabbing one. I'm not saying smoking is a sin. I'm just saying, let's just say that's your issue. And so you're like, I'm going to quit doing this. I'm going to repent of that. How much different that looks than saying, I'm going to, be, I'm going to get closer to Jesus. Like, one is focusing on the cause. The other one is focusing on the purpose of the move. I want to be like Jesus. And maybe as I get closer, Jesus and I are going to smoke a cigarette together. Maybe he's going to give me the power to put down the cigarette. But all I know is I want to be like Jesus. The purpose of my turning is to, is to be closer to Jesus, to be more like Jesus. It's amazing to me when we do that. It's amazing the things he convicts us. Like we, we have this problem is we have this list of things that we think he doesn't want us to do anymore that we think offend him. And then all of a sudden, we start getting more like him, and, and we'll get convicted of things that we didn't even realize were in there, like little things. I was t- telling a certain type of story not long ago, and I always told this story, and it made me look kind of good and made somebody else look kind of bad. And I, I said it really subtle, so it didn't actually look that way, but that's what I was doing. I was trying to bolster myself up and make this other person look a little bit bad. And I didn't even recognize I was doing it. Because the, the way I was telling it was actually true. But that's not why I told it. The why I told it was to make myself look good. 
And I was in here one Monday night praying for the church and praying, and God brought that to my heart. And I went and confessed to some people. I was like, I, you know, I've been, I keep talking about this thing, and I, I shouldn't do that anymore. God convicted me of that. And that was not, if you gave me, if you asked me to list my top ten sins, that wouldn't have made the list. I had no idea. But as I got closer to Jesus, it was one of the things he was like, I don't like how you do this. And he just revealed it to me. When we get to focusing on turning from a sin, we get our, our attention is on that sin. It's not on Jesus. But when we turn to Jesus and we're like, I want to be like you. I want to get closer to you. I want to, I want to improve my connection with you. Then he starts to deal with the other stuff. So how do we respond to this? I hope we would, we would respond to this message by learning to repent the way David did, which means two things. First, that we might follow his outline, reflecting on God's character, God's nature, that repentance is, is based in his goodness. It's not based in some contractual thing we have with him. That it, It's just based in how good he is and how loving he is. And if you go to him and that's not the first thing on your mind is... is that I'm going to a forgiving, loving God, then you're going to get it wrong. We reflect on our own character and just how thoroughly sin has infiltrated our heart and soul. You know how, you want to know one of the greatest evidences of, of depravity for me, what we call depravity, which is that sin has kind of affected everybody? My kids. I have ne- in 16 kids, I've never had to teach one of them to be selfish. I've, ne- I've never had to teach one of them to be mean when they don't get their own way. I've never had to go, okay, here's how you bite your brother when he takes something of yours. Like, I've never had to do that. I've never had to teach them to be evil. They came out evil, like from day one. I've had to teach them virtues. I've had to teach them how to share. I've had to teach them how to have self-control. I've had to teach them how... They came out sinners. I think they got it from Esther. But they... Like they, they, they came out thoroughly sinful. I've never had to teach them a vice. They came out, they just figure those out. I've had to teach them the virtues. And David, you know, it took falling for David to get that, to realize, like, I am, I am broken to my core. And now when I look back, I see that I always have been. I always have been, you know, arrogant and selfish and, and self-focused. There was nothing in me that was giving and, and loving. We also recognize that forgiveness is above our pay grade. It's a work that only God can do. There's not enough good deeds in the universe that you could do to counterbalance sin. Only God can save. And we have to go into repentance knowing that. Knowing that this is, this is not a penance that I'm doing. This is not something I'm doing to even the scales. If I confess I'm somehow you know, doing my duty, only God can save. We also allow the flaws in our own character. If we go into repentance and we don't come out of it more loving and accepting of others, then we didn't do it right. If we don't go into repentance and come out of it looking at other sinners differently, then we probably didn't repent right. Because when we truly repent, we come out and go, I want to love other people. I want to show other people how to get closer to Jesus. My God is so big and so loving and so gracious. I can't wait to tell other people about it. I completely blew it. I should have been booted out in a second and I wasn't. And I can't wait to introduce other people to that God. And finally, we turn toward Jesus. 
We don't bounce from sin to sin, playing sin management, playing behavior management. We turn to Jesus. The goal, the purpose, the teleos, if you want the Latin word, is to be more like Jesus, to be closer to Jesus. That's why we repent. Not just so we can stop doing something. You go to AA for that. Or you go to, there's plenty of good systems for learning to control your behavior. Repentance is for getting closer to Jesus. That's the first thing we learn from David. The second thing, and, and, and this one's touchy, is share your confession. And this is a hard one. It's amazing to me every time I study this psalm and how intimate this psalm is, like how deep and personal this psalm is, that David wrote this down and gave it to people to read and sing. David's confession is, is remarkably public. Of course, I'm not suggesting we publish our sins all over social media to, to make them public. Not at all. But I am suggesting sometimes we need another human being to talk to and for them to say, based on the authority of Scripture, you are forgiven. You've done everything the Bible asks you to do. You are forgiven. I had to do this with one of my kids, and it was weird because I was still mad about what they had done. But they came and confessed, and part of me wanted to go, how could you? And the other part of me was like, you know what? You've done everything the Bible asked you to do. You confessed your sin. Based on the authority of Scripture, you are freed and cleansed of all unrighteousness. Like, I, I can't hold that against you because God doesn't hold that against you. I believe there's something very powerful in confessing to another human being. Today, repentance and confession is kind of a lost art in Protestant circles. We have a tendency to think it's a Roman Catholic thing, like they're the ones who do the whole confession deal. But almost every one of the early church fathers, kind of before the Catholic Church was the Roman Catholic Church, when it was just the church, wrote about confession. They wrote about how to receive a confession and how to give a confession. All the reformers talked about it and encouraged it, except for Zwingli. I think he was the only one who didn't. Everybody else still believed in confession and thought it should be a part of the church. And the only debate was over who can receive one. You know, the Catholic Church thought it had to be a priest, and the reformers believed in the priesthood of all believers. That it can be. I lean toward the priesthood of all believers. Anybody can receive a confession. Any believer. I see it as a healthy discipline. It's been in the church for two thousand years, and it's good for our souls. Every time I've ever given a confession, I've been terrified. I've been terrified of what the other person is going to say to me. Am I going to be judged? Am I they going to think differently of me? Whenever I've chosen to unburden myself to another follower of Christ, I've found this unbelievable lightening in my own soul and spirit and a deepening of the relationship with the other person. Sin thrives on secrecy and, and darkness. And confession shatters that power. So whether it's taking the prayer of contrition that we pray together as a church every week seriously, like some people it's just they just kind of let the words fall away. Those are listen to the words. Those are deep and real words. So whether it's praying the prayer of contrition on Sundays from your heart and making a real confession, or whether it's sitting down with another believer which is what I think is truly powerful and saying, hey, I've blown it. Please don't take confession lightly. I honestly believe there's great power in that spiritual discipline. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you have opened the door for repentance. 
that you've opened the door for us to come to you and say, God, have mercy on me. God, have mercy on me. And to turn toward you and to rely on your character to accept us. I pray, God, that you would let repentance and confession be part of the heart and soul of our church. That it would change the way we look at people, that it would change the way we interact with people because we're, we constantly recognize who we are, that we only stand here by your grace. And we have no right to look down our noses at anybody else, that without the cross we would be lost, utterly lost. And so our goal, our only goal is to invite people to turn toward you with us, to be more like Jesus with us from wherever they're standing however far they are however near they are the goal is always to turn toward you help us to do that work because we can't do it on our own in Jesus name Amen would you come